This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hey y'all, before we get into this episode, I wanted to issue a bit of a trigger warning as I realized I didn't do that in the top of the conversation with my fantastic and amazing guest. This film deals very heavily with the topic of suicide. So this is obviously something that is referenced in conversation quite a bit. And it does, I think, stare a little bit outside of the context of the plot of the film as well. The conversation stays very thoughtful and Obviously not explicit, but this is a really challenging and difficult topic. So just wanted to be mindful and put that trigger warning out. So if you need to hit pause and skip this episode or come back to it at a different time, completely, completely understand. And please be kind to yourself. And with that said, let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. Now, we are continuing the vibe, the feeling of cool for the summer, and to keep it super cool for the the summer, I have another amazing guest, and they're going to introduce what's on the examination table uh, for this episode. But I'm excited to be joined by BJ Colangelo. Now, BJ has been and simply is an incredibly vital voice in the horror community. She has been writing about horror for over a decade with pieces published in Vangoria, Vulture, you name it. She's probably got her stamp there. And she has contributed to a number of books as well. She's also a filmmaker. Um, she has posted her short um, on social media and I've I viewed it and it's so goddamn good. Um, and she is currently an editor at Slash Film and a podcaster co-hosting the wonderful This Ends at Prom podcast with her wife. Harmony. So welcome, BJ. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes. So outside of all of the writing and kind of things that you've done within horror, um, which I, I was familiar with, I really um, kind of really thought of you as a guest here when, and I know I, I kind of talked about this when I reached out to you, an episode that you did uh, for This Ends at Prom. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the podcast because it's definitely not a horror movie podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so this, yeah, This Ends at Prom is a coming of age podcast where we look at another dismissed genre, the way that I think horror is a dismissed genre, which is teen movies and coming of age movies, but specifically ones targeted towards teen girls. And luckily there is some horror overlap there because movies like, you know, The Craft and Jennifer's Body, uh, Ginger Snaps, those are all horror movies that also tackle these sorts of themes. Um, But the episode that you're talking about in particular is 
what we have been calling our very special episode to kind of feed into the after school special teen vibe of it all. Mm. But there was, um, I, so I'm somebody who lives with bipolar and, um, I also have, uh, CPTSD and, um, just, you know, generalized anxiety, just a whole cocktail of things going on. I also am somebody who lives with brain damage. Um, so sometimes all of that kind of swirls together into a perfect storm and puts me in a really not great headspace. And, when you're doing a podcast, especially for us where, you know, we have a Patreon and that pays for half of our rent. So it's not like it's a job, like it's, it's not just a fun thing for us. It's also a job and that can put a lot of pressure on, on you. And I, I just got to this place where I was like, I have to take a break or I'm going to explode. I'm going to burn out or, you know, the, 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 the bad thoughts in the head were starting to get, you know, a lot louder than they normally are. and then I kind of pitched the idea to my wife, Harmony, who's my co-host. I was like, what if I'm honest about this? What if I just tell everybody that listens to us what's going on? Because one, I think I would rather people not speculate what's going on about with like with me. I would rather them hear it from me first. So that was a big part of it. But then also just in general, I've always been a person who's very open about what I'm going through. Um, I think that just comes from being a part of the age where I've just kind of always been online. Like I, it's hard for me to remember a time period before the internet. Um, so it just felt like a natural part of the relationship we've built with our listeners, which was just to be transparent and be vulnerable and, does it give me a lot of anxiety thinking about the ways that maybe that episode could be weaponized against me by, you know, people who wish to cause harm, of course, but those people are going to look for reasons to cause harm, no matter what I say on my podcast. So that's, that was kind of the, the intention behind it. Right. And I think that that's something that is always so difficult and, and you really hit on something that I think is you know, kind of the undercurrent, which is talking about representation mm-hmm. and why it's so important. Um, because, you know, you always get some of that pushback of, well, who cares if mm-hmm. there are disabled characters in Horn, how we're talking about them? Well, I fucking care because this is horror has for as long as I can really remember been a language for me. Mm-hmm. talk about my experience with other people and you know like going to a doctor's appointment when I was young and being able to like show the exorcist and be like yes <laughs> this poked and prodded and scary and intense stuff um so you're always going to get that pushback and and I really cannot say how I think it, it's been so inspiring and so amazing to see just how strong you have been and being able to continue to be that really, I think, um, voice and say, no, this is really important what we're doing in, in showcasing, you know, just being able to have a platform to talk about, like you said, underrepresented, underrepresented kind of genre films and 
you know, films that a lot of people just kind of dismiss and say, mm-hmm. no, there's a lot of value because people take so much from their experiences in these films. These are really capsules of time. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, whether it's a horror movie or whether it's a teen movie, you know, we we watch these films, they speak to us in a way, especially because teen movies and horror movies deal so much with coding and subtextual language that we're able to see ourselves in ways that we might not otherwise, because, you know, I, you know, I'm also a cancer survivor and I was originally given a terminal diagnosis. I should not be alive. So seeing a horror movie where I'm constantly watching people who also by all statistics and all measures should not be able to survive Jason Voorhees at Camp Crystal Lake should not be able to survive, you know, a demonic possession. There's something that makes me feel really seen about these stories in ways that, you know, a a quote unquote, like cancer movie is never going to show me um, because they're too busy (laughs) worrying about being just like tragedy porn. (laughs) Right. Right. And I do, and and I think that that is also something that's so key that you said about the kind of the, the subtextual elements of these films. And, you know, I know in certain episodes I've talked about, you know, having to do some pretty intense yoga stretches to like, all right, this is what this is really communicating, but hopefully bringing it back to a place to say, you know, this is why it did speak to me. And this is what it's saying about a certain element of you know, living with a disability or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is, I think that you're trying to, to really highlight in, in talking about something. So, um, no, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you're here and picking the film that we're going to talk about, I think is so perfect. So I, I do want to turn it over to you and say, all right, what film are we talking about? Oh, I'm so, and I'm so glad that you were willing to let me talk about this because I have so many things to say. Uh, but today we are talking about David Bruckner's The Night House. Yes. Oh, this film, this film is intensity. And it's also one of those films, um, just a little kind of behind the scenes thing. This film technically came out in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, It premiered at Sundance January 2020. And then, you know, the Panini Press um, of life happened. And so it was released in theaters in August of 2021. And I don't, in looking at box office, I don't think it did like huge, huge box office I think it transitioned over to streaming pretty quickly as films were especially want to do at that time but um so if you're looking up information it will either be under 2020 or 2021 but yes this film and with a lead performance by uh Rebecca Hall who only (laughs) a performance of emotional intensity that Within like four lines of dialogue, she'll have you feeling 16 different things. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Incredible. All right. So yeah, let's talk about it and let's get into the plot synopsis. And of course, this is brought to you by our friends that I have to sometimes correct over at Wikipedia. So thank you for the person that 
contributed this wonderful synopsis. <laughs> All right. So Beth has just lost her husband Owen to suicide. Devastated, she spends her nights drinking and going through Owen's belongings. She tries to appear stable and in control, but her friend and colleague, Claire, and neighbor Mel are concerned for her. Owen's ominous suicide note. You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. Perplexes her. She begins to suffer from strange supernatural events at night and finds strange reverse floor plans for their house in one of Owen's sketchbooks. She discovers a photo on his phone of a woman who looks similar to her and suspects Owen was having an affair. After a night out with Claire and some other co-workers, a drunken Beth reveals that she has been clinically dead for four, that she had been clinically dead for four minutes after a car accident years ago and saw that there was nothing when she died. Owen had always disagreed with this and was close to changing her mind before he died. Beth says that when she suffered from depression a year ago, Owen began sleepwalking, and she thought she had passed her negative emotions on to him. That night, she's awakened by a supernatural presence and witnesses several frightened women fleeing through the woods and jumping into the lake. She finds blood on the boat where Owen shot himself and feels an invisible presence. Crossing the lake to investigate a strange set of lights, she discovers a reversed copy of her house and sees ghostly figures of women with Owen. She passes out and awakens in her own home. She looks for the reversed house again and finds it, although this time it is unfinished and empty. She retrieves a strange statue from it and confronts Mel, who claims he never saw the house, but once saw Owen in the woods at night with a woman who looked like Beth. Searching Owen's laptop, she finds even more photos of women who look similar to her. Identifies the statue from one of his books as an occult voodoo doll and determines that Owen was trying to learn how to trick and trap demonic, demonic entities. Uh, Beth finds the bookstore where Owen bought the book and encounters Madeline, one of the women from Owen's photos, who denies sleeping with him. Beth visits Claire, who asks her to spend a few days away from the house. She agrees and heads home to pack, where she threatens the ghosts in the house. Madeline arrives and tells Beth how Owen invited her to the reverse house. When Owen kissed her, he attempted to choke her, but apologized after she panicked and drove her back home. A drunk Beth visits the reverse house and under the floorboards finds the bodies of women Owen had photographed. An invisible force caresses Beth and she hugs it, mistaking it for Owen's spirit. Spirit reveals that it is not Owen and shows her visions of Owen attacking and murdering the women. The entity drags her through the house, reveals that it is what Beth saw when she died in the car accident, and identifies itself as nothing. It explains that it tried to convince Owen to kill Beth to bring her back to the afterlife, but he resisted. Instead, Owen built the reverse house and murdered the Beth lookalikes to try to trick nothing, but nothing realized the trick. 
It then traps Beth in a position much like the statue that she had retrieved from the reverse house earlier. In the morning, Claire arrives and sees evidence of a fight in the house. Discovering the gun Owen used to kill himself is gone, she rushes out uh, to the dock with Mel, where they find Beth floating out in the boat with the gun. And nothing's to mention, the entity tries to convince Beth to join it by killing herself, but Beth decides to put the gun down and not shoot herself. As soon as she moves the gun away from herself, Beth returns to the real world, where Claire is swimming toward the boat to save her. Once ashore, Beth sees the outline of the entity in the boat. Mel asks her what she's staring at, and she says, there's nothing there. To which Beth replies, I know. So that... <laughs> that is, there's so much. <laughs> there, there really is. And I think... You know, really going over, I think, all of the the main pieces is really important because this movie is really, I think, kind of like an unpacking mm. of just so much. And it really does kind of build on itself. Um, you get to see things truly escalate um, in a lot of different ways throughout the film. So um, I thought it was really important to kind of highlight all of the kind of the twists and turns. But what is, so I want to talk about kind of what your relationship with the mm -hmm. film is and really hit on like, why was this a film that you're like, ah, oh, I, I want to talk about this. And, and when did you first see this? Sure. So it's actually uh, it, two viewings. Um, so I didn't see it the first time until it hit VOD because like you said, it was released during um 2021 um I was not going to theaters then because I am painfully immunocompromised so that was just no fly list was movie theaters for me for a, a very long period of time it's still kind of is um but I finally watched it when it was on VOD and I enjoyed it I was like this is really cool the visuals really fascinating I think I was more fixated on how they did the in-camera ghost stuff um because a lot of it is practical and that's very impressive. So that side of my brain was just like, oh, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the second viewing that really got to me. Um, and this is, I guess, a trigger warning for fat phobia, medical mistreatment, death, just bad, just mm -hmm. bad, bad, bad. Mm -hmm. um, but my, my longest friend who is the closest person in my life, um, her, her sister was um, going to be taken off of life support. And I was going to go back from, I'm living in Los Angeles now, I was going to go back to Chicago where I'm originally from and be with her and her family during this horrible, horrible time. And so I flew back. It was the middle of winter. I don't own a winter coat anymore. It's already like bad. Um, my hometown where I was growing up, people like really didn't believe in masks. So I've been, I was stressed that whole week. Like if I, I swear, if I come back to help my friend through this tragedy and then I get sick and then I die, I'm going to haunt the hell out of everybody. I promise. I was just, mm -hmm. I was dealing with so many emotions and obviously like I have to be the strong one for this whole situation. And then on the plane ride back, they have the in-flight movies and the only options 
where like some of the Fast and the Furious movies, which wouldn't, they would have, <laughs> not the, not the time, I guess, for me. <laughs> yeah. um, but The Night House was on there and I was like, you know, I, I want to rewatch this. I know that I like this movie, but coming off of such an emotional week, being in an airplane where you really are feeling very confined to yourself um, and not wanting to be near anybody, even though you're stuffed in there like a tin can um, and being so consumed, like nothing else can distract me. I can't look at my phone. I can't hear my downstairs neighbor doing something weird. I'm just in my headphones looking at this movie. Um, it really gave me the perfect space to just feel this movie and let it wash over me. And the more I watched it, um, as the time went on, uh, all of these themes started popping up in my head. And obviously it's important to, to identify that being able to make a read of a film does not necessarily mean that was the filmmaker's intention, nor should it be seen as, oh, I know what this disease is now because I saw this ghost movie. Like, no, absolutely not. But the compounding that you were talking about was one of them because I'm somebody who lives with a lot of compounding issues. And sometimes, you know, it can be really overwhelming to kind of pitch that to somebody. It's like, oh, well, what's wrong with you? And most people are like, oh, I'm, you know, I have depression or, oh, I have this. And mine's like, here's a laundry list of things that I have going on. And that's kind of what this movie does because this movie is a ghost story. It's a, it's also a movie about suicide. It's a movie about mortality. It's a movie about seeing things and people not believing you. It's a movie about grief. It's a movie about, uh, you know, insecurity. It's like, there's so many things going on at once. And I was like, oh, this feels very, very real. Cause I know what it feels like to have a thousand things compounding on you at one given time. Um, but I was just really taken aback by the way that seeing things that aren't there spoke to me as somebody who uh, I'm also, I also have aphantasia, which means I don't have um, a, a visual mind. Like if I close my eyes and someone says, what does your mom look like? I can describe her, but I can't actually see her with my eyes closed. And people with aphantasia have a tendency. We have very overactive imaginations to try to like compensate for that, which means in the dark, uh, we see things a lot, which also means that Skin and is a movie that affects me a lot <laughs> because that whole movie is just, do you see it? Do you not? Mm. Um, so the night has really spoke to me in that regard, but also just watching somebody navigate the complex emotions of loss, of feeling like you're at the end of your rope, of feeling like, you know, this person that I loved, um, it, they feel to be two separate people, which also, you know, kind of tiptoes me in like my, my bipolar feels because, you know, that's a very dismissive and reductive way. A lot of people describe bipolar people is that we're like two separate people, which is not true. Um, it, so it just, it checks a lot of boxes for me. And by the time the movie was over, I still had about an hour left on my flight and I just sort of sat there in my feelings and I felt myself cry, but it wasn't like a, like a sobbing cry where you're breathing heavily, just tears were coming out of my face and there was nothing I can do about it. And I sat there and I went, okay, this movie's really doing something here for me. So then I waited about a week, give myself space. And I rewatched it again when I got home and I still felt the same way. And I was like, yep. Okay. This is that movie for me now. Oh. 
Yeah, I definitely think that there's a there's a certain feeling that you're left with. And it's not, I don't want to say that this film has a positive, it's a positive ending. But it's really not because nothing is still there. Right. Nothing is still there. Owen is still gone. And in a weird way, there's something very peaceful about that because this is a movie that's not about overcoming your demons. It's a movie about learning to live with them because that's how so many of us have to get through the day. Like I will always be mentally ill. I will always be somebody who's dealing with that. I, you know, I'm, my body is also changing as I'm getting older and I'm becoming, you know, more and more of somebody who I go back and forth on claiming the disability label for myself because I am still quite able-bodied. But there are a lot of things that I can't do anymore. And, um, you know, this is part of that reality as well. And there's no overcoming that. There's no like magic cure to that. That doesn't exist. What I have to learn to do is adjust and learn to navigate you know, quote unquote, my new normal and what that looks like and what that means for me. And that's what Beth is doing. Her new normal is a life without Owen and knowing that nothing is always going to be there and being able to to live despite that. And that's very powerful to me. Yeah. And you hit on a couple of things that really, that really stick out to me. Um, because I think, you know, one of the things when I first saw this film, I wasn't going in with any anticipation, thought, feeling of this being a film that I could connect to from that disability lens. Mm-hmm. But almost instantly, I felt myself really kind of piecing certain elements apart, um, you know, because going back to the plot synopsis, you know, this really, there's two different kind of unpackings that are really happening within the main body of the film. One is Beth trying to, trying to, I think, get to an answer that anyone who has experienced the loss of a loved one, the sudden loss of a loved one is going to have. And that's why, like what, what happened? hmm because this seems very sudden, unexpected. And she makes the comment of, I was the one that was dealing with this. I was the one that was having the mental health issues. I was the one dealing with depression. And I know the plus synopsis is that she had been dealing dealing with that for a year. I think the film clearly states that she, this had been something ongoing. Mm -hmm. I think it was, I think it was very chronic for her. And I think the last year was probably just a a particularly intense episode for her. Exactly. Because I think she even talks about it following the accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, um, you know, kind of the, the piece where she's unpacking some of the things that happened to her. Um, And I think some of that unresolved like trauma of going through an experience of death near death mm-hmm. and you know she doesn't talk about any residual health issues following that but I think it'd be completely within reason that if you have 
a car accident where you are essentially dead for a period of time, there could be long, um, long lasting health impacts to that too. Um, both from a physical health and mental health, all of these things, I think, kind of come together. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and even if it's just the stress of going through that, you know, that tends to manifest in our bodies in different ways. I'm very fascinated with research behind adverse childhood experiences, which shows the correlation between, you know, children who grew up in really traumatized or stressful environments tend to have uh, poor, you know, quote unquote poor, but like negative physical outcomes later in life mm-hmm. um, because their bodies are working so hard to like protect their mind um, that they don't put that much energy towards your lungs. So it's like, this is, you know, why your asthma is acting up or whatever and seeing those correlations. And I would absolutely believe that that's something that Beth is going through, because even if even if you think you're fine, because, you know, it's not at the forefront of your mind, it doesn't go away. And it's probably manifesting in ways that you're not even recognizing. And I think that's how Beth exists for a lot of this movie until she finally comes face to face with nothing and realizes, oh, this is what's been harboring within me for a very long time. And now, now it's at the forefront. Now I can see it and it makes it tangible and something to deal with. Yeah. Well, I think connected to this and one of the things that you hit on earlier um, is kind of the PTSD Mm -hmm. here you know, because we're talking about she had this accident um, years ago, and obviously it's had an impact. She's dealing with that. Obviously, this is part and parcel of PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know this, this was something that you brought up, and I didn't know if you wanted to maybe expand on how, you know, how you saw this being portrayed in the film, and if you're like, I relate, I get this, I understand this process, or if it, or if there was something else that kind of stuck out to you as um, particularly poignant about the, the portrayal, all right, the depiction of PTSD. Sure. So I think it's also, um, you know, it's important to recognize that CPTSD and PTSD and the way that they differ is that with CPTSD, it's a series of events or lots of events that happen over time that cause PTSD versus like a singular event. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions where people are like, oh, PTSD. And they immediately think of like soldiers from war. Right. Right. And that tends to be a singular incident. So it's like very easy to draw the lines of went to war, have PTSD. Yes, fireworks are now scary. They sound like bombs. That makes total sense for a lot of people. It's very easy to understand. CPTSD is not super easy to understand because you're dealing with so many different situations and so many different events or like just a longevity of event um, that it becomes a little bit harder to identify what is going to trigger you or what is going to affect you. Some days, things that would normally trigger me, I'm fine with. And then some days it is debilitating and I can't get out of bed. And so watching Beth in this movie, trying so hard to figure out what is bothering her? Like, what is it that is following her? What is bothering her? Like that is 
such a relatable feeling because there are days where I will be so upset or so depressed or what have you. And I sit there and I will just be racking my brain. Like, what is it? What did it this time? Because you don't always know. I like, I have like, I can make some general predictions. I can make some assumptions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm true. Um, And so watching her do that is is such a validating feeling, even though obviously she's chasing a ghost, basically she's chasing nothing. Um, but watching her, you know, go obsessively go through Owen's things to try to make sense of what's happening to her is so relatable because she's doing it out of a trauma response. And that's whenever that happens to me, that's what I'm doing. It's a trauma response and seeing it portrayed this way in that it is both there's both a determination behind what she's doing and then also just such sorrow behind it because it's not a fun experience. This is not a very fun, like, you know, treasure trove that you're going through. Like you're mining through trauma. Like that sucks. It's not a good feeling no matter what you're doing. And so watching her do that is just beautiful. Like to me, like it, obviously it's awful, but like, it's beautiful because it speaks to me or, you know, she's with her friends and colleagues and they're trying so hard to like redirect, redirect. And she can't, she can't get off the topic because if she gets off topic, she might miss something. And I've definitely been in that position where my friends are very well-intended and are trying in the ways that they know how to help or what they think would help them in that situation. And it's very, it's, it's appreciated. It's appreciated, appreciated. I can speak. Mm -hmm. I promise it's appreciated, but at the same time, it can also be endlessly frustrating because it's like, no, but you don't know. I know you're trying, but you don't know. And watching her even kind of be so straightforward with that. speaks to me. Um, even the scene that I know a lot of people have beef with where she, uh, unloads, her own trauma on the parent of one of her students. It's the best scene. I, I'm obsessed with it. That is very much the energy that I had during like the, the lockdown era of quarantine or when people started unmasking and I, cause I still mask. And they'll be like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to wear that. And I'm like, I have cancer and I almost died. And they're like, uh Oh, and they immediately back off. So when she does that, I'm like, yeah, I know that's not good practice. And like, it's not the most, kind thing to do to a person but also ooh, that feels nice <laughs> well and I think also in 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 the scene that you talked about too where she's at the bar with her colleague it's one of it, there are two scenes that I think are hilarious in kind of a devastating way because mm-hmm. it's just she's very open and honest and wrong about exactly what she's feeling Mm-hmm. He doesn't try to hide it, which is something that's odd because I think some of when Claire towards the end, before you kind of get into the very final bit of the film, where Claire said, you know, you need to get away from the house, come stay here for a few days, you know, you'll get a break, you can kind of have some distance. And Claire says, or Beth says, yeah, okay, I'll go home and get a bag. And Claire just kind of looks at her like, I don't even know if you're, if you're serious. Mm -hmm. 
Are you joking? Like, what? Um, and I think it's because people often, when they're faced, when you have friends and loved ones who are truly coming to you from a place of, you know, not understanding what you're going through, but, you know, having, having that heart and having that empathy, just not necessarily getting it. There is that disconnect of, I, I just don't understand we're mm-hmm. not speaking a similar language right now. And so I thought that that was such a, a really interesting way to, to frame that of, you know, here's the characters that we see as being very frank, very open, mincing zero words about what she's feeling, what she's experiencing. And then someone that's so close to her, probably the closest person that she has being like, I don't even, I can't, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't know how to read you. And that's so frustrating. I think too, for a lot of you know, because I obviously don't want to assume that Claire is neurotypical. I don't know her story, yeah. but I think when, you know, neurodivergent people in whatever form that that looks like, that's obviously a very large umbrella term, but whenever they're communicating with people that are neurotypical, you know, neurotypical people, they they tend to work in metaphor or when you say like, oh yeah, let me know if I can help. They don't actually mean that, but it's a pleasantry. Um, So I think that disconnect is also very much on display in the way that Beth communicates with people, because when Beth says something, she means it. And I think a lot of people are not used to somebody actually meaning what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you have to confront, oh, you were serious or are you serious? Um, you know, that, that feels like something on display. Like, again, this movie is just so rich with so many different things that can be representative of so many different things that I feel and experience. Um, it's like a playground really. Yeah. And I think that also gets to the scene with the parent because Mm -hmm. a parent comes in doing a parent thing, which I know that you've work in education oh yeah this also why this speaks to me because she says to the parent the things that I wish I could have said to the parents yes yes but the parent comes in they're upset with it's the end of the school year um and the parent is upset with the grade that their child hunter has gotten in an elective speech class So first off, everything about the conversation is so delicious because um, the parent comes in kind of with this demanding of attention air. Yeah, she's guns blazing. She has a mission. (laughs) She does. And she at first isn't really hiding it. And, you know, she's like, well, I'm coming in to talk about my son, Hunter. And Beth says, well, I have many students named Hunter specify and the mom thinks that she's being cute and she's like no I have three students named Hunter Mm -hmm. which one and so they they get there and it's about a grade and they're kind of going back and forth that the grade is based on the fact that the student didn't deliver on the final project didn't come um to do anything about it until the last day well the last 
day of school happened to be a day when Beth was out because mm-hmm. of the woman's death. And so the they're going back and forth. Well, my son was going to do this, but he was out for personal reasons. And Beth just lays kind of lays lays it all out. And it's like, well, I was out because my my husband killed himself that day. So yes, it was a personal matter and you didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry that your son tried to correct things at the last minute, didn't work out. What grade do you want? I'm not doing this. I don't care. Mm-hmm. An A? Give him an A. Want a B? Mm-hmm. Give him a B. What feels good to you? And she wasn't expecting that. And I really like that scene because she's not also, I think, she has no interest in kind of that, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. She she doesn't entertain it. She's not like, I, okay, great. Move on. We're done. She's also very much assessing a hierarchy here. Like, I, d- I definitely don't, I don't like tragedy sparring um, or pain Olympics or trauma Olympics as it's referred to. Um, I think that serves no one. But in this instance... <laughs> Yes, your high school elective speech class grade does not rank in importance above the loss of someone's husband. I'm so sorry, it doesn't. And for her to be able to identify there are more important things in this world, I don't care about this grade. He can have whatever grade he wants. I have more pressing things to deal with is so validating because I think that is how so many of us feel, but we know that like, we probably shouldn't say that because we don't know what's going on in their lives. Or we, you know, we want to see people as full people and meet them where they are. They didn't know this situation, but the fact that she just like kind of lays down her Trump card and is like, get out of my office um, is very nice. And makes me feel some kind of way. Uh, it makes me feel a joy that I don't get to feel very often because I, I am a person who, as open and honest as I am about the things that I deal with, I do make myself smaller. I do stifle it because I'm also very aware that it makes other people uncomfortable because I am very okay. And I mean, not okay, but like, I'm very accepting and understanding of the the multiple ailments that I deal with every single day, the things that I've been through, but I've had years to get to this point. Right. Me springing the information of the things that I've been through onto another person, that's new information for them. Um, This is like a side tangent, but it makes sense. We talk about it on our podcast a lot, but my wife's brother, who was not a very good person, um, died because he was run over by a train. And it was not a like tragic accident. Like it's obviously a tragic accident, but it was of his own doing, Um, but it was not suicide. It was alcohol related. Um, and he was also not a good person. Um, so it's a very complicated situation. So she has had years to deal with this and she also didn't really like her brother to begin with. So she has kind of a joking manner about it where they'd be like, Oh, do you have any siblings? And she go, Oh, I had one. He got hit by a train and like people immediately are like, Oh my God, are you okay? Is, is that okay? Are you okay? She's like, Oh yeah, no, I'm fine. (laughs) Like, and, but you watch a person taking that information and process 
how they would deal with it in their, in their life. And you realize, oh yeah, this is new for you. This is, you're, you're like 70 steps behind where I am with this situation right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That is, that is a really interesting framing. I think of that because we, I think in a lot of ways do that. We, and it's, it is kind of a, a weird balance to try to strike on one hand it shouldn't you know we talk about like the emotional work that we we have to do for others mm-hmm. in certain situations like you know I'm fine with this um because yeah like if I've talked about certain aspects of my disability people will be like oh 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 I'm so sorry that you've had to experience that it's like well okay especially if it's something like you've it's the only thing you've ever known there's not really anything to be sorry for like I've always been mentally ill so when people are like oh that must have been so hard I'm like if it was I don't know that because this is my my baseline here exactly it's like well I was born with my disability so like what I don't know. Like it's always been chill to me. I'm sorry. It's not chill to you. Right. Exactly. Um, I can't like, that's not a journey I can take you on. You have to figure <laughs> that out. And, and I hope you do, but, but they got to do it. They've got to do it on their own time and on their own dime. That is yeah. my philosophy with a lot of things. And it's like, Hey, you want to, you want to ask follow-up questions? 100%. Like that's appropriate. If you have questions mm-hmm. and like, that's cool. But yeah, I can't like, I'm fine. And that's it. Like, <laughs> I'm good. So yeah, I think I, I, I like that you kind of honed in on that, because I do think that that's something, um, you know, in the way that Beth really interacts with people um, is that it is very like, I am on my journey. Your mm-hmm. journey is not my journey. Mm-hmm. I want information. I want answers. And this is how you can be involved. So um I I yeah, I I I think that's such an interesting um kind of element there. Now one thing that you you mentioned and I want to circle back to is the representation of bipolar disorder mm-hmm. because this was something when you had mentioned this I was like I had not even made any kind of connection um of that and I watching it again I was like oh <laughs> okay now I can kind of see it but I wanted to know if you would maybe expand on like what stood out to you about that. Totally. So for me, the the most prominent look at bipolar in this movie, in my opinion, is the stuff with Owen and this idea of a reverse house and a reverse life and, you know, kind of this this flip side to who he is, because the Owen that Beth falls in love with 
for from all that we gather, he's kind and funny and empathetic and wonderful. And then she also discovers, hey, he also killed women and hid their bodies under the basement of this house. Um, And you have this feeling of like, oh, well, I don't know that person. That's a totally different person. That is not the Owen that I love. And, you know, then when you realize what's going on with with nothing and that he was doing this to protect Beth, you realize, oh, what he's doing, these like, quote unquote, horrible actions. These are things that he's doing because he loves his wife, because he is thoughtful. He is attentive. He is wonderful. That is still the same person. Those actions may look very different than the person that she knows, but they are rooted in that same heart, that same love that he has for her. And for me, as somebody who is bipolar, I have been, I'm also a Gemini too. And like, I don't believe in astrology, but being a bipolar Gemini, I feel like is just the, the ultimate setup for a lot of punchlines for people. Um, but, (laughs) but there's, um, there's this, you know, misconception people have that if you're bipolar, you are two entirely different people or that you're almost a split personality of like, this is your depressed side. This is your manic side. And I think that that's really reductive and really dismissive, but you know, there is a tiny little gem of truth in there because when I am in a manic state, I am not the person I am when I am in a depressive state, depressive state, BJ doesn't leave the house. Depressive state BJ um, has a very hard time brushing her teeth that day. Yeah. Manic state BJ will steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> like I get so determined and, you know, very fixated on things. And it's taken me a very long time to understand that this is not two different people. This is not two different personalities. This is not two different existences it's the same existence. They're just two different, you know, they're, they're different flavors, but they're the same flavor. It's like being Neapolitan in a way, like, yeah, there's three different flavors, but it still came in the same container. And sometimes depending on how you scoop it, you get a little bit of both. Sometimes you get a little bit of mania and a little bit of depression. Um, but it's always, it's, it's still Neapolitan. I'm always Neapolitan. And so watching her come to terms with that with Owen Because, you know, she's so confused by his death. That's not Owen. That's not the man she knows. That's not her husband in her mind. And then recognizing, okay, well then did he cheat on me? That's not my husband. That's not the man he is. Why would he do that? And then once she figures it all out of, oh, this is this nothing thing. He was trying to trick this thing. He was doing this for me. That understanding of it's always been Owen. Like this isn't a different person. This is him. And these are just different things he had to do to get by, to navigate, to make our life more, more hospitable, what have you. And I mean, not a perfect metaphor by any stretch of the imagination, but like, that's how I feel about myself with my like medication. Like with I'm, when I'm medicated, I'm so at peace with all of those sides of me interacting and coexisting and being okay. And I don't know, just the, you know, it's hard to do mental health allegories with horror movies because it can get into demonization very, very quickly sure. um, if it in the wrong hands. But I think when it comes from somebody who is living this existence, who ha- who navigates the world in this way, there's no shame in seeing the the similarities or seeing, you know, 
something that speaks to you in a way that might be hard to explain to somebody who doesn't have a brain that functions the way that my do, mind does. Um, yeah, the the stuff with Owen and her just coming to peace with this is all of him um, really resonates with me. And the fact that she loves him still, like, because I think that's another thing, anybody who is dealing with any sort of um, disability in any way, I think there's always that feel of like, will someone love me as I am? Or will they love me in spite of who I am? And she doesn't love him in spite of who he is. She loves him because of who he is. And that is also very validating to me. Yeah, no, and I'm so glad that you you talked about the relationship between Owen and Beth because we see early on because the first night um, that she's home um, after the funeral, she probably does what a lot of spouses who have lost their partner do. They pull out a wedding tape and mm-hmm. they tap into this just the most, you know, what is probably the most beautiful and pure moment of their relationship that coming together um you know if you have been married um that's such a symbolic time because it's Mm -hmm. a celebration and others are there celebrating with you and it's it's really um you know at first it, it hits you one way, but as you begin to kind of see what their dynamic was a little bit, um, it takes on a lot of different meanings because you realize that, um, you know, Owen was in a lot of ways her support and mm-hmm. her rock. And she had really, you know, shared with him, you know, what she had been through, her mental health challenges and all of this. And he was trying desperately, I think, to be that supportive rock for her. And that's really, I I think that she continues to see that and loves him. Even after she finds his bodies, Mm -hmm. the women that he's killed, she's still like, yeah, I would, I would still hit Ghost Owen. It's right. (laughs) I think a lot about, um, like the way that we'll see so many movies where you in like, especially in horror where like mothers will do anything to protect their child. Like, yeah. you know, like I love the movie grace where it's like, yeah, she's killing people. Cause she's got to feed that baby. Like I get it. And I kind of feel like Beth is sort of there where obviously she's very sad and a little horrified that Owen did this, but when she re- knows what it's for, it's like, my man really did that for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. What a sweetie. <laughs> Well, and I think that it's, you know, I, and there's something that I want to, to get into that will build on to this, but I kind of wanted to, to go back to something that you said that really stuck out to me about, you know, being someone with a disability, mental health issues, they're all part of who we are and they, they can be really, really messy really challenging and difficult obviously for us who you know that's what we live with but also for the people in our lives sometimes and one of the things that I know in my past I've worked specifically with youth with disabilities and we go through 
you know, all of these kind of like self-advocacy trainings and we talk about, um, you know, as part of that, how you share your disability with other people. Um, because, you know, I worked with teenagers and so some teenagers had very, or had elements of their disability that were, you know, probably physically apparent. They were in wheelchairs, used mobility devices, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But there are also a lot of kids that I worked with that had hidden disabilities. And so how do you disclose or talk about your disability as a teenager starting mm -hmm. to form those relationships? And how do you share with someone like, well, this is what I'm going through and framing it in that context of, I love the, the way that you framed it as being Neapolitan ice cream of, yeah, like it's all in the same container. It's just sometimes you're going to get some strawberry and that's mm -hmm. cool. Sometimes you're going to get some strawberry and chocolate together. Maybe, maybe that's cool. Um, but it's all there. And I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about what your experience in that realm has been. Yeah. So I think when I was younger, um, cause I was diagnosed with bipolar and I was like 13, um, which is the perfect age to be told, quote unquote, something is wrong about you. <laughs> um, I definitely internalized it for many, many years and I kind of kept it to myself and I would really only talk about it when I had to talk about it. You know, if I was having an episode and acting erratically or something was, you know, going off or I was acting outside myself, then I would talk to people about it because, you know, a lot of times when you're in those states, you don't know you're in those states until you're out of those states. And then it's like, oh my God. Um, luckily I've been pretty good and like, I've, I've not like bought a dog or something like when I've been particularly manic. Um, but I wouldn't tell people and that was always a problem because then, you know, that kind of ties into that thing we talked about earlier where then when I finally do tell somebody what's going on, you know, I'm at step 70 and they're at step one and we're not on, we're, yeah. we're too far apart for this to become, um, salvageable at this point. Um, I, I did have some very destructive relationships in like my high school and early college years because of that, because I was not honest about it. And, you know, if you don't know what somebody's going through and then I'm behaving the way that I am, I can't really fault them for being unwilling to put up with my shit um, because they don't know. They don't know, like, you know, that, that, that's, that's not something I'm going to hold against them. Um, but then as I've gotten older, I started tiptoeing, um, my last like very serious relationship before I met my wife. Um, I was pretty honest. I was like, these are things that I have. I'm medicated that you just should just probably know just in case. Um, but I, I should, I think I should have been a little bit more on front street about it because it took a while because again, it's compounding. So they got like the surface level. Okay. So I, yeah, I have mental illness. It's this. And then it comes out. Okay. I, yeah. I have, I have CPTSD. Okay. Yeah. I'm also bipolar. Okay. Yeah. I also have this. And like, you just kind of kept adding and adding. Yeah. Whereas when I met my wife, I was like, you know what I got, what do I have to lose? 
you're going to find this out about me. Eventually you're either going to be down or you're not. Here's, here's what I've got. Here's the silver platter. And she was like, okay. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wait, it was that easy. I could have been doing this the whole time. Okay, cool. Um, which obviously that's not necessarily true. Not everybody is cool. (laughs) Not everybody is cool with it, but she was. And, um, I mean, obviously we're married, so it's the best relationship I've ever had. Um, but part of me does think that because I was so honest with her and transparent from the beginning, she could start the journey with me immediately. It didn't sneak up on her. It wasn't unexpected. She knew what she was getting into. And I mean, there are aspects that are, I mean, she wasn't in my life when I had cancer, so she's never seen that part of me. She doesn't know how bad that was for me. That's not something that that exists to her in theory. It's a concept. It's a part of me that she knows was there, but she wasn't there for it. The same way that, you know, anybody who, you know, gets married, chances are you don't, you weren't there for like the time in second grade when they scraped their knee and now they have this big scar, but you can see the scar, you know, the scar is there, you know, the story behind it, but you weren't there for it, but that's okay. You can still empathize and still love them. And that's very much how we operate. You know, we both have things from our, our past and we have our own, you know, mental issues that exist that we have to, you know, navigate in on our own terms for ourselves. But then also, you know, I know that she's done research to, you know, understand this, or she's gotten really good at knowing the signs of when I'm about to be in a place and she knows how to prepare accordingly. And so we get through it and we get through it a lot easier than, all my other relationships where suddenly they wake up one day and I'm not leaving bed and they're like, oh, well, okay, this changes our next two weeks. Yeah. And I think that some of this also comes with just an experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a teenager and as a, you know, young adult twenties, you even knowing that I had health issues I was in kind of the sweet spot of well nothing's really like massive right now so Mm -hmm. I don't need to talk about it I don't need to do anything just gonna wild out for a bit (laughs) then as I've gotten older and I've had more and more complications that come with my disability then it's like oh right so I actually do need to like tell people Hey, this is a thing. And, you know, if I pass out, um, here's a thing. If I start mm-hmm. like having, you know, X, Y, or Z, this is something that needs to, to happen. And I think that, yeah, it's just something that you find. I think in some cases, it is something that you find you have to develop and refine over time because you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have the language for it. it's not something that you're taught like once you get a diagnosis um whether it be something um you know in any kind of health spectrum there's never that follow-up appointment with all right and now we're going to sit down we're going to talk about it here's how you need to to do this i feel like i have been in a really good place in talking about my disability because um and I think I told this story before um you know when I started kindergarten um 
we had just moved to Iowa at that time. And there were, you know, lived in a very rural small town area and people talked. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was some information that was completely inaccurate that was being kind of shared, gossiped amongst like parents of the kids that I was in class with. And people weren't letting like their kids play with me like at recess. And so my mom asked because I would go home and be like, well, no one will play with me. Um, I just have to play by myself at recess. Mom's like, well, why don't the kids want to play with you? Like they're a kid. You have to Mm -hmm. wait. This seems like a, a very simple thing. And yeah, we found out that there was, you know, that parents were telling their kids to like stay away from me. And it was because they didn't necessarily know what my disability was. They were worried about their kids getting it. Mm-hmm. And so I, as a little six-year-old, had to like give a presentation to the teachers with my mom to be like, this is my disability. Please don't say it's anything other than this. These are just the facts. Kids are fine. Thank you. And and it's such like, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And at the same time, I am not surprised in the slightest because it's, and it's always that story, right? It's always the parents. The parents have this concern. They don't want to do the research or want to understand. They just make the assumptions and act off of the assumption and then now all of this like work is being put on a child. Like it's always, it's always that same song and dance. <laughs> yeah. And it was, but I think that that, you know, that's all part of, as you go through life, you have to figure out the ways that you talk about, Hey, these are the issues that like, these are the flavors of my Neapolitan ice cream. Just so you know, um, and here's how we we can navigate it. So I I one of the things that really stands out to me and, and that I love about the Sunset Prom is the way that you and your wife talk about really built that rapport within your relationship mm-hmm. because it's just so loving and simple. It's like, yeah, if you're having a bad day, we talk about it. We deal with it. We we keep each other informed. We're respectful. We're kind. And we love each other. And that's just how you move through things. And so, um, yeah, I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about that just because it was such a a point of the relationship between Owen and Beth is that they really did seem to have that kind of dynamic where he was very loving and supportive of her. She does have, you know, the line about how, um, you know, she had shared with him about her death experience. How there was nothing there, which obviously this is all talking about, you know, when you die. Mm-hmm. And he is coming from the perspective of, no, there's something there. And you need to believe in something. 
Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, saying he'd almost got me to that place. And then he, he uh, passed. And so that, I think that kind of component always strikes me a little bit weird is like, you know, partners can have different beliefs mm-hmm. of what is there at the end. Um, as long as it's not something that's really going to erect hurdles in kind of the day-to-day functioning of the relationship, it's completely fine and normal. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Beth's anger at that situation is also just because, you know, be, she's still kind of early in the process of understanding what happened to Owen. She's in the anger stage of her grief. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes total sense to me that she's like, oh, you know, he almost got me there because she's really indignant about it, which in the way that only Rebecca Hall can deliver these lines, she's just such a master of her craft. And, um, you know, she she's upset because she's like, you know, he almost he almost convinced me and now he's gone. And, you know, in her mind, it's like, well, because he thinks there's something there. And, you know, that that's going to bring out some pretty big emotions for her. Um, So, yeah, I I agree with you. You can definitely have disagreements on on that as long as it's not like, well, I believe in, you know, heaven. Therefore, we can never be gay together. It's like, okay, well, (laughs) that's going to make this impossible. Right. Well, that kind of prevents anything. So A plus. yeah, no, I, that, that was just something that, especially on um, my most recent launch, I really honed in on, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. like he, he needed to chill, mm-hmm. needed to chill and be like, let me just support you in the way that you need to be supported and not mm-hmm. let me convince you of X. But, you know, there's obviously a lot that we don't know that was going right. on. Um, now one thing that I kind of sticking on the relationship aspect, this idea that really, I think, and I've talked about this with other films, and I think it's something that you see in horror in a lot of various ways, is this idea of your issues, um, your illness, your mental health issues, whatever the case may be, infecting or burdening mm-hmm. your loved ones and kind of being the monster um, or taking on this monstrous quality and causing harm directly to them. Mm-hmm. And we see this because Beth is saying, well, I shared with Owen my issues. I talked to him about nothing and now nothing got to him. Mm-hmm. And this is what it has led to and I have so many feelings about that obviously like we've talked about sharing um sharing about your disability sharing about any issues is challenging enough within the context of a relationship but when you're doing that and you have this fear of what is going to happen? Is this A, going to be the end of the relationship? What harm can come, not just to me, but to this other person as well? 
and our relationship. I think that it's it's obviously something that's real. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that this film, I think, tackles that is very real. But it's also just one of those things that it also just it applies a, a level of stigma to being able to be open about mm-hmm. yourself with people that you should trust. Definitely. I mean, if I had to put like a top five of like the existential fears that I have, that's one of them. Um, and it's because I kind of, I watched it happen in a very strange way. So I was, I had a different partner when I had cancer. Um, I am a hundred percent no contact with this partner. This partner is not a good person. Um, but <laughs> in this instance, it, it's a very good example. I don't talk about this person very often, but this is one area where I think it's important. So when I was in the hospital during my first surgeries, I was there for quite a while. I mean, they had to remove <laughs> vital organs from my body. Um, and so my partner could only eat hospital food. And hospital food's not the best. Um, Sometimes you get lucky, but a lot of times it's not very good. Uh, But the thing that they did have was uh, a very, very good like smoothie bar. And my partner's favorite flavor combination in the world um, is peanut butter and banana. So they got peanut butter and banana smoothies like every single day that I was in the hospital to the point that when we got out of the hospital, when I was in recovery, And for years after, they didn't want peanut butter and banana smoothies anymore because that flavor was then now associated with being in the hospital and with me dying and the, the, the chance of me dying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, they never like identified it as that they were never like, oh, this is why, but I knew I was like, oh, I know why you don't like this anymore. You would have had a peanut butter and banana, anything every day for a hundred years. But then I got sick and then that happened. And now you don't have them anymore. And I immediately internalized it because I knew that's what happened. I knew that's what happened. It was like, you would now have a negative experience association with that flavor combination. And from that moment forward, I have always had this like sinking fear that me being in someone's life is going to infect them in whatever way, whether it's, it's going to be a detriment to their own mental health, wanting to care for me or knowing, you know, my, my poor mother, um, the same time that I had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, my father was diagnosed with kidney cancer. So she had her, her daughter and her husband, both in treatment at the same time. And she's now terrified of doctor's offices. And obviously like that is her own journey to work through. That is her thing. She's going to have to work through. I can't make that go away for her. Neither can my father, but we both struggle with that. Like whenever she has to go to an appointment, she's so anxious now because the, you know, she had two very major things happen where a routine doctor's appointment turned out to be the worst possible outcome you could have. And, you know, it's really hard sometimes not to blame myself for that, but I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I got sick and I got help and that's what I needed to do. Everything that comes from that, like that's my mom's thing to deal with. And 
sometimes I say that out loud and I'm like, oh my God, I sound like such an asshole, but that's, that's the reality. I can't undo that. I can't unring that bell for her. She has to figure out how to do that on her own. And same thing with my former partner. I, it's not my fault that they had a peanut butter and banana smoothie every single day in the hospital. And now that flavor has weird connotations for them. That's their thing to unpack, not mine. And I think that's what so many of us who are you know, mentally ill or disabled or in any way, we have to remind ourselves that the way people cope with our existence or deal with our existence, that's their journey to be on, not ours. And it's hard because it feels like, oh, but it is my fault. I did this. And it's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. And it's like, Rebecca Hall, like Beth, you shared that with Owen. What he did with that information moving forward, that's on him. That's not on you. But that's a really hard thing to to grapple with. So I don't deny her the feelings of like, oh, I did this. This is my fault. I get it. I've been there. It takes a lot of therapy to work through that. And I have spent a lot of money working through that. Yeah, I, you're you're exactly right. She didn't say, okay, so now I've told you this. Here's what you need to do. Go find people who will hook a biz- <laughs> like, just, They really did excellent casting yeah. this in finding the people who look exactly like Rebecca Hall. Um, I really want to like ask David Bruckner sometime, just like randomly be like, Hey, so by the way, did you just put out a casting call that was like, must look like Rebecca Hall? What, how did you find that? Yeah. Do you look like this person? <laughs> Please send a photo and inquire with him. Yeah. It's especially with the, the one person that we obviously get to know is Madeline. Cause I think that that is probably like the last person that Owen was kind of pursuing. I think so too. Yeah. And so she looks exactly like Rebecca Hall, not in, and I say not in an identical twin way, like it would have been one thing if they just did like a, a split screen and it mm-hmm. was Rebecca Hall and Rebecca Hall. This is someone who just has like the full presence, the looks as well, but just mm-hmm. also carries himself in a way that's very Beth-like. And so um, <laughs> I, I find that so, so fascinating with this idea of, you know, when we talk about infecting or burdening the people that you're around that are in your life. Now Beth is also dealing with the fact that this then stems outward it's not Mm -hmm. just the people in my life this is impacting people who I don't know never met that just happened to look like me and my Mm -hmm. husband happens to cross paths with um and I mean you're you're right in that it's not it, it she didn't tell him all right so go find these people and kill them (laughs) hopes that this nothing will lay off of me and it's you know she has to wake up every day that's not something that you shut off Mm -hmm. it's regardless of what kind of logic reason and like you said intense amount of therapy there's I think always going to be 
at least a slight ping of that. And you just have to be able to let it, let it be. Mm-hmm. And then say, okay, how do I deal with this? Because I know this isn't, I know that I'm not, I'm just existing. I just shared this with a person and I'm not responsible for this. So, and she's, she's definitely not there yet when she's talking to her, because I have like a weird head cannoning where I think that Madeline is probably very close to how Beth was before Owen passed. I think Beth has always been a straight shooter, but I think she's obviously a lot harder now that Owen is gone because she's dealing with all those emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can tell when she's talking with her that she is mentally preparing herself to clean up his mess, so to speak, because Mm -hmm. as Madeline's talking, she keeps saying, what did he do to you? So like, she's under the impression, like my husband did something to you. She, which I do like that there is a little bit of like sisterhood solidarity there where she's not immediately demonizing this woman. She's Mm -hmm. like, Nope, he's the problem. He did something wrong. What did he do? And, um, you know, I think it's twofold of like one wanting to know the truth, but two, how do I make this better? Because he's not here to make this better. So I feel responsible for this, which I think, you know, goes to show that when, you know, before, when, when she's not dealing with horrific tragedy, Beth is a very lovely and empathetic and thoughtful human being. She is. And I think even in the moments where, you know, the, the scenes that we talked about earlier with the parent and when she's out, after work with coworkers, like she's definitely very cutting in those scenes. But I also think that there's an, un, like there's this underscore of, she is a compassionate person. Mm-hmm. She wants to give that parent what they want because she, A, I think it's mainly just to get the parent out. Right. <laughs> like, I don't care about this trivial thing but I do think it's like, hey, I understand you're a parent. You want to do what's right with your kid. I don't know if this is the right thing, but whatever. I can appreciate that. So I'll entertain this. And with when she's out with the, with the coworkers and one of them drops the uh, Shakespeare soliloquy and she's like, oh, you're trying to make me feel better with a Shakespearean suicide soliloquy (laughs) and everyone is just like oh no and she starts laughing and she's like I'm just fucking with you and then everyone turns on her and is like you can't do that and she's like yes I can yeah I like and again like I just appreciate that so much because I am definitely a person who I mean, I've been in remission for a bit now, but because pancreatic cancer is what it is, it's an asterisk. It is forever a a looming threat that it can just pop up one day and I'm out of here. And that's how I have to live, which does mean that I do make off-color jokes of like, hey, hun, can you take out the garbage? Oh, I can't. I have cancer. I can't do it. (laughs) And it's like you know, for some people they're like, that's not okay. Like, don't make that joke. But for us, we have the rapport. We can make those jokes. That's fine. I've just gotten really good to know, like, this is probably not the best joke to make unless somebody is very aware that gallows humor, um, works for me. (laughs) Exactly. We, I think we all have elements of that 
in our relationships where we, you know, there are definitely certain jokes and certain kind of things that we can say with certain people because they understand where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. We don't have to do the whole contextual things. And obviously there are just going to be certain settings where we know, okay, I'm not going to say this now, even though it's something that I would find very hilarious in this moment, (laughs) not the time or place. So I'm just going to sit here and not say anything. Totally. And I mean, that, that extends to so many things. I mean, my wife is transgender. She makes so many Mm -hmm. trans jokes at her own expense. My personal favorite is whenever I need help doing anything you know, quote unquote, like traditionally masculine, whether it's like opening a jar or building a bookshelf or whatever. She loves to say like, looks like you need help from a used to be a man. Like Mm -hmm. that is so funny to me. And it's so funny to her, but we do know that there are people that are like, that's horrifically offensive. Never make that joke ever. And it's like, well, this is how she's dealing with it. She can make these jokes. You don't get to tell her that. (laughs) Exactly. Everyone, I think 100% agreed. Um, Now, one of the last things that I had in my notes um, to hit on, and we we kind of danced and pranced around it a little bit, is survivor's guilt. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think Beth is reeling and dealing with mm-hmm. survival with survivor's guilt to ten. Because I think this not only and and I could be completely out of pocket. One of the things I always say as a disclaimer this is not a mental health podcast (laughs) um but mental health physical health all aspects of health do converge and I think they can all be talked about together in a lot of similar languages and ways Mm -hmm. but um you know I I would assume and just from my own personal experience having experience the loss of Owen that probably would trigger activate a sense of survivor guilt not only in that specific context but also going back to that accident Mm -hmm. because I don't think it's stated in the film but we can make an assumption that if she had almost died someone else may have passed in that accident Mm -hmm. not survivor's guilt and so definitely layers um of that and it's something that from the first time I saw it really stuck out to me because also again tying into what we talked about with the you know what what is my what is my responsibility to what's going on to the actions that this person has taken I think these all kind of bleed into each other in really complex ways that I think this film handles with just a a really beautiful touch. Um, but, you know, survivor's guilt, I think coming from a disability perspective, and I, I'm sure you have a lot to, to, to say, um, you know, with your experience with pancreatic cancer, um, you know, for those of us with disabilities, conditions, diagnoses that don't have great survival rates. Um, there, you know, every time that we hear about someone that maybe we've met, um, you know, at like disability camp that has our disability. I've only met 
a handful of people that have my disability. Um, there was never anyone around where I grew up. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to DC um, that I met someone in my 20s. Um, but you, you know, you know that, oh, well, I have this and this and this, and the odds of survival are, aren't great. Mm -hmm. And that person that you heard about or that you know with that similar diagnosis isn't there as well. And then you're like, why did I mm -hmm. do okay? And that person over there didn't. And that's, I think, something that isn't discussed. And I don't, I mean, not in a, in a wide array that I've seen in exploring, um, you know, for with this lens. I think one of the only films that really sticks out to me that I think does deal with survivor's guilt in a very intense way is Pet Cemetery mm -hmm. with Zelda. Yeah, the the three movies, honestly, that I recommend when I think about like survivor's guilt is The Night House, mm -hmm. Pet Cemetery, and Spontaneous from 2020. Yeah. Um, the, like those three movies, I think they do such a good job at showcasing the complex feelings that you have about being alive when you shouldn't be, being alive when other people in similar circumstances are not, um, or being alive and just struggling with being alive um, when, you know, there are so many other people that would you know, would give anything to be alive. Um, because you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't get talked about. There's this semblance of, you know, you should be grateful for this experience. So any sort of negative feelings you might have um, are dismissed or they're seen as selfish, um, which is then really difficult not to internalize. And I think anybody who has been in this situation, like if you have any form of survivor's guilt, chances are a lot of that is because you are far more in tune or exposed to other people. Like you were mentioning like disability camp, right? Like, you know, I am in so many different like cancer support groups or families of cancer support groups. So I just happened because of proximity. I just know a lot more people that are going to be involved in a situation like this. Like, and you know, the same thing happens with, with disability. You just happen to know more people with, right. you know, difficult life expectancy terms because we do exist in, you know, the, the fringe or the margins from, you know, general population. Um, and so then that gets exacerbated, uh, all the things that we feel because we do make these connections and these relationships. Um, you know, like I had mentioned, my dad and I got sick at the same time. One of my best friends from high school, um, you know, who I've known my whole life also got sick at the same time. She did not survive. Um, I miss her every day. And when she was sick, when things were getting towards like, when we were understanding and coming to terms, like she's not making it. Um, I had to take a step back from her, not for me, but for her, because the last thing she needed in that time was to see me, the poster child for miracle survival. That's not going to help her. Um, I saw her the last weekend she was lucid before 
cancer just took over her body. And I'm very grateful for that. And it was really wonderful. And it was a group setting with a bunch of our friends and it had to be that way. It needed to be a group setting with all of us, because if it would have just been one-on-one, um, I think that would have been too much for her. I think it would have been really hard for her. Um, but that's a thing that I carry with me every single day. Um, and the fact that I am somebody who, you know, I'm a quote unquote miracle survivor. That's what the doctors all tell me every day. I'm very aware of the statistics. Every time I get a new doctor, like when I was getting my, like my COVID shots and I would get like a different nurse practitioner or whatever, they would look at my medical history and go, oh my God, pancreatic cancer. That's a miracle. You know, people don't survive that. And it's like, oh, I'm very aware. I don't need you to tell me that in this moment. I'm very aware. And you're, you're sparking some thoughts here, doc, please don't. Yeah. Um, like I'm just here for the shot. Yeah. I don't, I don't need this. I know I'm very, I promise you, I know. Um, but you know, I, but I also have severe mental illness. So I'm also somebody who survived the unthinkable but has uncontrollable thoughts to take my own life all the time. And it's difficult for me to talk about that or express that without somebody being like, well, you should be grateful because you could be dead already. And it's like, you say this, like, I don't know this. Um, But it does make it really, really hard whenever somebody passes. And because pancreatic cancer is so deadly, um, every time a new celebrity passing happens in their old age where they die of cancer, I'm like, I don't even want to know. Cause I know it's going to be this. Like when Alex Trebek died, so many people, I think they were trying to be like helpful in a way. I don't know. Um, but they were like, Alex Trebek passed away of pancreatic cancer and we should be making like doing more fundraisers. We should be raising more awareness for pancreatic cancer. You know, if you have questions, you know, here's my friend. And I'm like, please don't please don't do that. Or, um, you know, I really, really struggle with, um, you know, different, uh, pancreatic cancer kind of like, uh, I don't want to say the actual name, even though it's pretty obvious, but, you know, different organizations that do like fundraisers or, or, or what have you, they want me to speak because there are not a lot of people who have survived and certainly not people my age. Um, I mean, during my treatment alone, I was the youngest person on my floor by like 40 years. Um, So they all want me to talk because they want me to, you know, I'm proof that you don't have to die. I'm proof that, you know, you can survive. But also, I don't also want to give false hope to people because statistically speaking, it is really bad. And I have had a couple of not super great um, interactions at these like rallies at these, you know, promotional events where people are really, really sad that somebody they love is no longer with us. And, you know, they almost view it as like, I took their spot, so to speak, which obviously we know that's not how the world works, but when people are in pain and when they're mourning, logic kind of goes out the window. Um, (laughs) and so, you know, those are really conflicting feelings. And so when I'm watching Beth in this movie, I'm watching her do that. Like I'm watching her have, you know, 55 emotions, not all of them play well together happening at the same time. And, you know, like you said, at the very top of the show, like only Rebecca Hall can kind of do this. Like she does it so well. And it's very, it's very validating. I know I've said that word a lot, but that's the best word to describe it. It's very validating to watch her go through this and 
you know, have those moments where she thinks nothing is Owen and be so relieved and so happy and then so angry and so scared and so confused and so frustrated when that's not what's happening or feeling, you know, trying not to internalize everything that's going on. Um, yeah, again, like it's a read. It's I doubt this was like canonical text. Um, maybe some of it, because I think Bruckner and uh, Luke Petrowski and um, oh, my God, Ben Collins, I think is another name. Um, they are very empathetic people and a lot of their work tends to deal with trauma. A lot of the horror they make, the ritual, even the new Hellraiser, you know, very much dealing with trauma. Um, so I think part of it's there, but I don't know if they recognize that it was going to hit so many layers and so many interpretations. Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, it really does cap at the end where Beth is on the boat with the gun. Mm-hmm. And we, as a viewer, understand that she's in this kind of different plane of existence with nothing. Mm-hmm. And from the viewpoint of Mel and Blair, they just see someone who has lost their spouse mm-hmm. and is now you know, based on the optics, planning to take their own life in the same manner. And yet we understand that there's so much more complexity of what's happening in that situation. It isn't, I don't want to say, well, that's not what's happening. Cause I think there's that, that element of she's out on the boat mm-hmm. with the gun Mm-hmm. But it's, I, you know, as, as what you're saying is that it's hard to really be able to, to really explain to people who don't experience it, like the thoughts that come along with these things are not simple mm-hmm. and they're not clean cut. They're not, there's not a simple way to, to describe it. If you're experiencing, you know, that survivor's guilt if you're feeling um you know a lot of these complex emotions that we've talked about and that you shared so beautifully there's not an easy way to talk about them and I feel like the ending of this where you have all these different things happening at once and we're just kind of taking it all in I think that really gets at a heart of something which is just you know again not having these people in your life that are well-intentioned and kind and lovely but they're still being that wall of Mm -hmm. I don't know how to share with you what I've experienced and what I feel and you're gonna need to now like what you you know Claire has now seen someone that she's incredibly close with what she thinks just on a boat about mm-hmm. to die by suicide that's gonna be really upsetting for her yeah that's something she's gonna be carrying and you're so right because what's happening in that moment is we're seeing the different perspectives and it's it's beth accepting 
this is this is for me like this is the a thing that i and people are not going to understand this and i think with so many of us who who you know live outside the margins so to speak um we spend a lot of time wishing somebody would understand wishing you could talk to somebody making somebody else see what you see feel what you feel and the greatest peace we can give ourselves is accepting that that's not going to happen, that it is impossible for another person to fully and wholly know what you know yeah, and to be at peace with that. And I think that's what we're witnessing is her being at peace with not only that this is a demon she's going to have to live, out, live alongside forever. Um, that it cannot be defeated. So we're just going to live with it. Um, and then also being at peace that like, yeah, they're, they're not going to see. And that's okay. It's okay that they're not going to see because I see and I know that it's real. And as long as it's real to me, who cares what anyone else is seeing or not seeing? It doesn't matter because it doesn't affect them anyway. <laughs> no, that's uh, that that's such an amazing way to put that because now the work becomes okay so the, these people i'm here i'm mm-hmm. i've survived now how how do i knowing that these knowing that the people in my life cannot have that intimate understanding of this experience and what's going on kind of in the internal um kind of landscape of of me how how can I communicate to them what they can do how they can Mm -hmm. exactly because at the end of the day that's I think what is really important is and I think that that's also a really beautiful just kind of like small piece of this ending is like you said her kind of coming to this realization of this is on me now and just for me and probably finding some comfort in that honestly Mm -hmm. to say you know I've taken on this demon in a real way to let them know like you know don't fuck with other people in my life like you want me you come to me you settle with me Mm -hmm. and we're just gonna we're just gonna be roomies and we'll live with it and we've you know it's setting boundaries I guess with like okay yeah just know that this is how this is going to work but now you have to be able to find a way to communicate all of that which no one knows no one can know no one can see and say all right yeah things are going to be really rough from time to time I'm going to be battling a demon (laughs) exactly (laughs) so I'm going to need you to help me by doing X, you can't say that. You can be like, hey, if I seem like in distress about something, cool ways that you can support me is these five things. If you have any need for clarity on those five things, you can let me know. But start with those. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's a really interesting ending because I think it's, like I said, I you don't feel great um I don't think you could feel great after watching this movie no um, <laughs> but, but there's 
there's comfort in that not feeling good. <laughs> yeah. And being like, yeah, guess what? You've been through some shit. There's not a fucking magic eraser mm-hmm. to take away like that part of you. <laughs> so now it comes the hard part of living with it and living with others and sharing that. So yeah, it's it's a really great movie. I'm so glad that you suggested this because again, not something that I would have necessarily had as like the highest point on my radar to be like, this is something that would be really interesting to talk about, even though there were certainly elements that stood out to me as being like, oh yeah, I really like this really hits for me. And this is really interesting. I love what they're doing here. I really like when you said, oh, well, what about this movie? And here's some things. I was like, absolutely, (laughs) this is so perfect. And it just kind of ties it all uh, together. So yeah, this has been, I I think, a really, um, I think, wonderful way to kind of think about this film. And I was really happy to go back and watch it again and notice different things with like, okay, EJ mentioned this. And so I'm going to kind of be thinking about how, how this may pop up. Excellent. Is there anything else that within the film, any moments, any kind of themes, ideas that stuck out to you that we haven't hit on? Mm, I guess the only thing is uh, we didn't really talk about Mel, the neighbor all that much. And I mean, he's like kind of like a smallish role, but something that I find really interesting is that Mel sees something and then doesn't say something because he doesn't want to burden Beth with it, which I also think is very much um, speaks to my experience, especially when I was younger, where I would like, that was clearly in a manic episode and people would see me doing wild stuff and like no one told my parents <laughs> like I think they were worried like oh I don't want to get her in trouble or oh I don't want to do anything when they could have been helping me <laughs> they could have been helping me start my journey a little bit earlier but again you know I don't fault people for that you assess with what information that you have they didn't know what was going on you know for all they knew I was just being a rambunctious you know middle schooler or what have you um but uh, I think I think about that a little bit with Mel, where it's like, well, I, I did see Owen in the woods one time with this lady who looks like you, but I didn't want to say anything. And it's like, oh, your intentions were good. You probably should have said something. <laughs> well, and he very specifically says, and then Owen came back and said, don't say anything. Mm-hmm. But even and, still. <laughs> yeah. And I like you do feel so bad for Mel in that situation because it's like, what is this man who's obviously a great person, a wonderful right, he's so nice. <laughs> and he's like, who the fuck am I living next to? Like, exactly. I don't know. This guy is out in the woods with a woman. And when Owen comes, they apparently have like a real conversation. And I guess, obviously, Owen doing exactly the things that we've talked about was like I'm not gonna actually be like well there's this demon I'm sacrificing these girls right and this like makeshift thing that's supposed to look like my house to like confuse the demon um and he doesn't say that he's like uh going through some shit don't tell Beth and so obviously he just thinks that he's having an affair Mm -hmm. um I 
the thing that I would always that would flag me is like you're literally pursuing like various like um contrast version replicas of your of your wife mm-hmm. like you're literally putting your wife on a copy machine and you're just playing with like you know the shadings and the different settings and it's coming out very similar there's something like i know that people have types right <laughs> but like that's usually like i like tall people or i like you know i'm drawn to this not i like people that are between five foot six five foot six and you know, <laughs> long brown hair have you know very strong like jawline dark eyes style their hair in a very specific way no that's too much work it's like so i read a lot of um like am i the assholes on reddit and relationships on reddit because i they're like very fun thought experiments for me where i like have to sit there and like think about the different angles and there was a a thing going viral the other day where this guy was talking about how he used to be like a horrible alcoholic he had a lot of problems he was with this woman for many many years she helped him get clean she's wonderful he loves her more than anything but he's like i keep thinking that like every time I look at her, I think about the horrible person I used to be and like that part of my life that I don't want to remember. So I'm thinking about leaving my wife and starting to date again. And there's this woman that I work with who looks like almost exactly like my wife. And I love my wife. And this woman looks a lot like her. And everyone was like, bro, this is, if you are clearly going after a woman that looks exactly like your wife, just stay with your wife and deal with your own issues of how you are viewing her. This, this is a you problem. Leaving her is not going to make that go away. And also, you're awful. Like, she did everything for you, and now you're acting like this. Gross. Um, and that's what, like, in a weird way, I kind of think about that. It's where it's like, if you are actively seeking out somebody who looks exactly like your ex, your soon-to-be ex, your current partner, whoever, you should unpack that a little bit. Yeah. And I don't think that that's something because even when I think it's Claire, the first photo that um, Beth finds of it's Madeline um, at the bookstore, she shows Claire and Claire's like, well, that's you. Right. She doesn't even recognize that it's another person. Yeah. She's like, well, yeah, he, he has tons of pictures of you on his phone. Like, that's you. And she's mm-hmm. like. I have never been to this fucking bookstore. <laughs> um, no, like it, it, I, in what planet, on what planet would I come to you and be like, who is this person? If I clearly can <laughs> right. conjecture that this may possibly be me. Like, I understand that there are things that we do that we do not recall because of a thousand and one different reasons, mm-hmm. but it's, I was just like, oh, Claire. <laughs> you need to just tune in right she's doing her best <laughs> like wow um yeah poor mel um he does have a very like he's been through some stuff not just with his neighbors but he had recently i think lost his wife as well mm-hmm. about how kind they had been um to him and yeah like that dude just wants to like 
live in the woods. <laughs> right. He just want he he's 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 checked out a little bit and you know what? You deserve it. Take that time, my guy. Although I do like that he is also very protective mm-hmm. um of her as well, as, especially it seems since Owen has passed. Not that, you know, women need male protection. It's still just like good neighbors. Like I'm super protective of my neighbors. I don't even like I don't know my neighbors' names, but there's a lot of kids and I'm very protective of them. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know you. I, you don't, like, you're fine. You're pretty self-sufficient kids, but I keep my window open when you play outside just to make sure if somebody gets hurt, I can help. <laughs> exactly. And it's like simple things too. Like I live <coughs> in <coughs> a city and you do always have to kind of be on the watch out for each other. You know, like if a neighbor goes out of town, you know, they let us know so that, oh, totally. um, you know, be, you know, keep an eye on the property. See, you know, we'll let you know if maybe something gets delivered so you can grab it. Um, So, yeah. But, yeah, he just wants to be in the woods and chill and live in existence. And he's, this couple just keep coming to his door being like, we love you. We're here for you. Also, here's this entirely complex and unimaginable thing that we're putting on you please you to enjoy yeah it's it it would be interesting if I don't know how you could even expand on that character though um yeah he definitely fulfills the role that he needs to I think he he's there for exactly what he needs to be there for excellent all right well I think that is going to wrap it up for a conversation about The Night House. Again, what a movie. Um, I did watch this recently with um, my friend Bill and his husband. And I love watching this movie with other people because there's always that moment once it ends that you just kind of look at each other and everyone is just having their own thing (laughs) they're doing their own thing in their heads and it takes a few minutes and you're like all right well what what did you think about the movie well so I think this is a difficult one because I often try to like think about movies of you know is this something that I'm going to put out on like at a party having like a movie night or something this might be a complex one for people to like dig into yeah but it could be like a, a rorschach test of of type to be Definitely. like let's see what everyone takes out of this and and it can be a cool little party game <laughs> and I, your inner hurts and i think that you know a movie like this really does speak to the personalized nature of watching a movie and that art is subjective and we're all going to see things differently and certainly how the ways our lived experiences and our existences um you know impact the way that we interpret the movies that we're watching and you know that that's to me the magic of the movies i mean yes we can talk about being transported to other worlds and the escapism and all that but to me the magic of the movies is having a singular relationship with a piece of art that and again this movie says it you might not be able to fully explain to another human being. They might not be able to see it the way that you do, but it matters because it matters to you. And that's powerful. And that's comforting. 
No, absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think it's been so wonderful talking to you about this because I think not only just based on your experience, but I think this just ties so beautifully into the conversations that you have over at This Ends at Prom and kind of the same ideas that you're talking about with these films um, with having, you know, you and your wife have completely different kind of takes on films. Mm-hmm. And it's so amazing when you're like, okay, I didn't even think about it that way. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, and that's exciting. Like yeah. I love when people have totally different takes of movies because I, I think, I think that's something that's been lost with like social media is that we have forgotten that an individual take is a take. That's not definitive. That's not, you know, yeah. the final word on anything. That's someone's take and it's okay to have different takes. That's the exciting thing. I love to have different takes than other people because that means that the, the movies are speaking multiple languages at the same time. And that's really cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that would be really a goal of any filmmaker is to have something that speaks to lots of different people in lots of different ways and to let their work kind of live and grow and evolve for folks. Um, Yeah, because I think that's also what makes films a lot more um, impactful on Mm rewatches. Definitely. And I mean, that's when I fell in love with this movie. It was a rewatch and it was because of the the very particular circumstances of having to say goodbye to somebody who shouldn't be in the situation they're in, but being there because of medical neglect and fat phobia and all of these things that put her in this situation that she didn't deserve. And had I not been in that mindset, I don't think I would have been open to seeing this film in that light, which is why I'm very much, uh, encouraging of of rewatches when people are in different headspaces for certain movies um i think again it's endless like and movies are endless and they're wonderful and that's why i'm so obsessed with them absolutely well thank you so much bj for spending the time and sharing your experience your expertise and all of that i think this has just been so much fun um and it has been such a delight to talk to you. Um, Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. And, you know, since my this is definitively not a teen girl movie, um, <laughs> I doubt I would have had a chance to talk about this movie on my own show. So this was an extra special treat. Hmm. Well, in any time that you're like, there's there's a non-teen movie horror film maybe I want to talk about, <laughs> you can always look this direction because you're always welcome back incredible thank you so much yes um so we've mentioned this ends at prom but where can people find it where can people find you on the wide world web (laughs) i am on twitter instagram tiktok and now thankfully blue sky uh at bj colangelo um because twitter seems to be falling to pieces um our podcast this ends at prom you can listen anywhere that you get your podcasts um we also have twitter instagram at this ends at prom and we have patreon patreon.com backslash this ends at prom where we expand and we also talk about um uh teen boy movies under our sadie hawkins dance episodes as well as very 
very important moments in musical history that impact mm. uh, teen culture. And it's our podcast is both a celebration of the genre, but also an interrogation of the messages that we may have taken from these movies, because as much as people like to pretend that teen movies are just fluff, uh, they're pretty important to us when we're like 14, 15 years old. No, absolutely. And I will have links to all of this in the show notes. I cannot recommend the Patreon enough because you guys have so much just exquisite content from the playlists that Harmony puts together, which are always amazing. Um, the City Hawkins episodes are so cool. Um, love them. And also the musicals. I I think one of the moment that I really fell in love with the Zunes at prom was hearing you really with a passion speak out against Greece. that's so funny I mean obviously this is an audio format so people can't see it but like I definitely have like grease too above my head during this whole recording no and I and I'm (laughs) I must clarify grease not grease Mm -hmm. too oh I know (laughs) but grease too is my baby and it's most of that comes from my my feelings of my very complicated feelings about grease the movie um no so all of that will be linked uh in the show notes so do check it out um thank you again bj this has been a treat and a thank you to anatomy of a scream the home and the heart of bodies of horror um as i always say if you're here you're more than likely subscribed because that's where you're coming to the show (laughs) from but there's always new and exciting content being dropped on the feed regularly so you want to be in the know so make sure you are uh subscribed i'm also uh going to be uh doing some double duty and helping out over at the uh the altar tapes and talking about the horror shorts over there i've mentioned that here um sporadically but uh I'll be sure to kind of give y'all uh, some some notice, but very exciting stuff happening there. So um, thank you uh, for listening and until next time. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.